there's the sexy work and there's the non-sexy work. There's the big strategic kind of cerebral stuff. And then there's the, the basics. Both are equally important. And sometimes you see really great HR consultants or HR practitioners in-house who only want to do the sexy strategic stuff and they neglect the foundational basic stuff. And if the plumbing and wiring doesn't work, the house doesn't work. So some of the more basic things, the foundational things that I would say every single hypergrowth startup client we have has a need for. And one example are pay practices. And, and this is one of the areas that is most fractured and problematic. So what happens is you have early stage founder, they build their inaugural team, and they have no idea how to pay people. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Today, we continue the conversation we started in the last episode. Our guest, Kerr Landon, is the CEO and founder of Inspira, a unique and innovative HR services firm. In part one, we discuss how Kurt formed his leadership style and how he decided to start his own company about 20 years after he started a career in HR. Kurt talked about what he learned from his successes and also what he learned from a couple of challenging situations. He also made a pretty good case for the fact that spending two decades in HR and in people management, given the range of issues and the number of departments that you work with across the firm, are an excellent trailing ground to become an entrepreneur and a founder. In this episode, we focus on Inspira, and we will go over some of the mission-critical issues that companies, and specifically how growth companies face in the people management area. And we will also see at how Kurt and his team have built a very unique set of services designed to meet exactly those issues. Enjoy. Let's talk about Inspira. It's a pretty unique vision of HR. You know, when we were introduced professionally, I, I thought it was a very clever idea do you want to share with my audience what Inspire does? And then I know that as the company progressed, you sort of added ideas and product ideas. So if you want to talk about from where you started to where you are, what were some of the key points that informed your increments of strategy, if you will? Sure, absolutely. Um, and thanks for the question. And I'll share a caveat before I start, which is forgive me if I get a bit excited because I'm so passionate about what we're doing. So I already shared a little bit about in my own personal journey, why I decided to start Inspira. But I think from a business perspective, and in the, if you will, market for HR stuff, <laughs> why did I start Inspira? And kind of what, what did I set out to um, maybe disrupt or change? One aspect is I had a hypothesis throughout my career that there's a special voice and ability for impact for people who are outside of the organization. And I think this extends to what you do for a living too. There's a special place for that. I mean, you have internal coaches and in organizations in HR and elsewhere, but there's a special role that you play when you're working with an executive on the outside. And I think the same thing is true in HR. And it's not to take anything away from the really talented people who work in HR. But when I was in my in-house roles, there was always some outside voice that was sort of in in the wings that was influencing key leaders in-house. And for reasons I still cannot fully understand or explain, sometimes those outside voices carried more weight and had the ability to have more impact, even if they were saying the same thing 
that I was saying or advocating for. So I was always curious about that, and I still am. So that was one thing. At the same time, from a content of work perspective, for decades, I've seen business leaders, line leaders, and HR leaders do what I call admiring the problem of things that just don't work in organizations from a people standpoint. Great example is performance management, You know, assessing people's performance and writing reviews and giving feedback and performance ratings. It's just a mess. And it's always been a mess. I mean, never in the history of time has anyone ever said, I love my company's approach to performance management. It's just not a thing, right? And what I started observing over the years uh, were these trends and fads that would come onto the scene in HR around performance management that I now look back and say that was done to sell a book or write an article or get a speaking engagement or that person's 15 minutes of fame. And there was some usually pretty shaky, questionable research and data that they used to justify this. But I actually think that with all due respect, a lot of these things were kind of very thin and unfounded and really did not move the dial. None of those movements abolish performance reviews, get rid of performance ratings. None of these things, in my humble opinion, have worked. None. None of them. And they're all very noteworthy and sort of sexy and attractive and seductive, but they don't work. And they create a myriad of other problems, right? When I was at Expedia, there was this whole project to get rid of performance ratings and to get rid of performance reviews. And I remember feeling this way about it. And then what ends up happening is, so you don't have ratings, but then you still have to figure out how to pay people. And then people still need to understand where they stand from a performance standpoint. So you ended up with this workforce of tens of thousands of people who had no idea whether they were in good standing or not, which creates a whole set of cultural issues. And then your pay practices become in jeopardy and questionable and potentially not legally sound because you're not anchoring them to documented performance. And so how are those decisions made? And what I started finding was that in most organizations that were doing this, there was a shadow rating system, right? And so no disrespect to my good friends at Expedia, but I remember at that time, the people who were leading that project said, well, we're not going to have performance ratings. So we'll tell the organization there are no ratings. But then when we go to you know administer pay, we'll have performance buckets, but that won't be known to the organization. And the buckets are the same as the ratings, but we're going to call them buckets. So it was a shell game. And I didn't like that. And so fast forward back to Inspira. Um, So one of the reasons I decided to start Inspira was because I thought if I can get really smart people together who are humble and not interested in their 15 minutes of fame and selling books and articles and speaking engagements, let's solve this, these issues, these head scratching, complex talents and people and organizational issues. Let's solve them once and for all. Let's actually move the dial and make meaningful change for the right reasons. So that's what we're doing. And it's so exciting because so, um, you know, one of my key leaders who you know, well, Robin Powell, who leads our leader and manager effectiveness practice, we are doing cutting edge work on raising the level of frontline manager capability. And it's the first thing I've ever seen in my career that's actually raising the level of frontline manager capability. And I've seen a lot over the last 27 years. And so I am so energized by the fact that I have the ability with my incredible team to actually innovate and make meaningful change. And 
the performance management example or the frontline manager example, these are just two of probably 20 areas where we're really making meaningful change. You know, our approach to total rewards, you know, compensation and benefits and uh, hiring and placement of HR leaders, our approach to HR technology assessments and integration, our work that we're doing in diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. We're doing incredible work with intact C-suites and senior executive leadership teams to ensure that they are effective and that the way that they interrelate is productive and that they're leading their organization to success. So we're not just doing a lot of activity and having events. We're actually moving the dial on their effectiveness and capability level. And that is directly correlated to their company's success. So probably more than I've ever felt before, we're really revolutionizing and reimagining the entire sort of people ecosystem in hundreds and hundreds of organizations, both for-profit and nonprofit around the world. And so that makes me really feel very uh, humble and fortunate to be able to play some small role in changing the way that this work is done. It's really, it's just such an honor and privilege to be able to, to be doing this at this stage of my life. So, Is there a market that you focus on? Are you working more with like large companies, mid-market, small? What is the sweet spot to engage your services? So, I mean, technically speaking, so we right now, we have about 160 clients and, you know, they run the gambit from the earliest of early stage startups with founder and no one else, not a single employee, all the way to big blue chip global MNC enterprise organizations um, like MetLife, AB InBev, companies like that. But I would say the sweetest of sweet spots for us is really in the startup realm and working with earlier stage startups, maybe 10, 20, 40, 50 people, hyper growth, founder led, mission driven. And where I think we can be most impactful for some people is a bit surprising, which is that earliest stage startup with just the founder and maybe a couple of other people. If we can get involved at that stage, there's so many great things that happen. There's an aspect of being able to get in there. Uh, if I use the um, home construction metaphor, so really getting in there at the time where the architect is working on the blueprint and the design of the house, we have the ability to help that founder really think through their philosophies about culture and diversity and capabilities and the structure of their organization. Because some of these incredible entrepreneurs and founders have never done this before. And they don't know self-admittedly a lot about people and organizational life. And they need a really good thought partner and subject matter expert to navigate that. So we get in there and I bring in a SWAT team. And we have the ability because now we're working at scale to be able to say, okay, these are with clockwork precision the sort of things that are going to happen at different stages in your journey. At the six-month mark, you're likely to have these three things happen. And they'll say, well, how do you know that'll happen to us? I said, I don't. But we work with 110 companies that have been at this exact same stage. And 109 of them have gone through this exact same thing at this exact same time. It may happen to you or not, but let's not just hope for the best. Let's hope for the best and plan for the worst. And so... You know, an example just to bring that to life is a lot of earliest stage startups, the founder will often build their inaugural senior executive management team, optimizing for trust, 
familiarity and technical competence. I did the same thing, right? I hired the same leader, Robin, to come work for me. Um, Robin and I have known each other for 20 years and she's competent. I trust her and I'm familiar with her. And I built my whole C-suite for Inspira based on people who I trusted, I trust and familiar with and who are technically competent. Usually these early stage founders are not thinking about, am I building a diverse team? (laughs) Am I also bringing people in from a myriad of different backgrounds of different organizations and cultures and industries? And so what ends up happening is about 12 to 18 months down that journey, suddenly there's some realization of, oh my gosh, I am lacking diversity on my team. And there's an opportunity there. And so then they are rebooting their leadership team. Well, we can preempt that. So there's a bit of a preventative maintenance aspect of what we do too. You were working with sort of smaller startups and there's a big architecture role, if you will, in that. But there's also very practical challenges that leaders have as they scale up uh, growth startups. So what, what are some of the practical challenges that they face from an HR standpoint and that you help them solve? I love this question because one of my philosophies about this kind of work is there's the, sorry to say it this way, but there's the sexy work and there's the non-sexy work. There's the big strategic kind of cerebral stuff. And then there's the, the basics, right? Kind of the plumbing and wiring in the house. And I think both are equally important. And sometimes you see really great HR consultants or HR practitioners in house who only want to do the sexy strategic stuff and they neglect the foundational basic stuff. And if the plumbing and wiring doesn't work, the house doesn't work. You know, you can have beautiful interior design and architecture, but if the plumbing and wiring doesn't work, the house doesn't work. And so that was really ingrained in me by a lot of great HR leaders I worked for over the years. So I like this question a lot. So some of the more basic things, the foundational things that I would say every single hypergrowth startup client we have has a need for. And one example are pay practices. So and, and this is one of the areas that is most fractured and problematic. So what happens is you have early stage founder, they build their inaugural team, and they have no idea how to pay people. They don't have anyone working in HR. They don't have any access to total rewards or compensation professionals. Nowadays, there's a very significant aspect of compensation and pay practices that's related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in terms of either legally or ethically or both um, a requirement to engage in fair and appropriate pay practices. So these founders, unfortunately, are doing things like looking up salaries online and then using that to determine how they should pay people. Or they're saying, I know a guy or a woman who used to be a you know, chief scientific officer for X company, I'm going to go call him and ask him what he made eight years ago when he was in that role. And I'm going to pay this person that I mean, obviously, that is not the way to do this. And so that caused me to then realize that we should start a total rewards practice. And part of why I did that as well is because there is a system wide global shortage of really good compensation people in the world. Um, You just can't find them. There are fewer and fewer of them coming into the working world. And then um, out of the ones that are there, then there's also phenotype because you want a total rewards person who is creative and solution oriented and anchored in the business, right? 
So it's just hard to find. So I saw a big need for this. So I'm always listening to the market. I'm always listening to our clients and what they need. Because to me, the most important thing is, I want us to be helpful. I want us to meet our clients where they are, whatever their needs are, help them build winning businesses and organizations and to really almost be a growth engine for them. So that's why I decided to build this. It's not inexpensive to build a total rewards function because total rewards leaders uh, command incredibly high compensation rates themselves. And so it was a bit of a risk for me to do that. And I, I don't usually do anything halfway. So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so I built an eight-person total rewards team. I brought in a head of total rewards, Michelle Loden, who has 25 years of experience um, and is just incredible at what she does. And then Michelle, being the incredible leader, she has built this you know, seven, eight-person team under her of the best and the brightest in total rewards. And pretty much every single client we work with needs that team's help. And so that's a great example of kind of listening to the market and meeting our clients where they are. Uh, two other areas I would highlight. One is um, on the uh, executive search and, and talent acquisition side. Kind of a little bit of a funny comment, but over the years, what I found is HR leaders, HR professionals, you have two camps of them, the ones who love recruiting and hiring people and are sort of want to be recruiters themselves. And then ones who absolutely hate it and want to have nothing to do with recruiting. I've always been a little bit of a wannabe executive search person. I think it's fascinating because you're, you potentially have the ability to really impact the success of an organization if you get the search right. But you also have the ability to change people's lives right, by giving them access to a new career. And so I've always had a huge amount of respect for this. And I had this idea probably about a year ago, where I thought what I saw in the market was you have these incredible HR search firms, right? You know, Russell Reynolds, and, you know, people like Matthew Gus, who's an incredible leader in that space. And, you know, Tom Scanlon, and Spencer Stewart, and Claudia Kelly, and you know, th- these incredible search businesses. But they're somewhat disjointed from the human capital and HR consulting work and engine. You know, a lot of these firms now have these practices, but it's a bit more of kind of an add-on and adjacency. And the core of our business has always been that human capital and HR consulting practice. So I saw that. And then I see HR consultancies that have nothing to do with search. And a couple of things came together for me. One is, I thought, if you are already working with an organization on the HR and human capital consulting side of things, then you understand their culture, you understand how the organization works, how work gets done, you understand who's who, all of these things. Who better to run the search for their chief people officer or their head of total rewards or their head of global talent acquisition than the people who have been working in that organization for years and years and years, right? So I thought that's one opportunity. The other is, If a search firm is placing someone into, let's say, an HR leadership role, then really thinking about that more holistically and saying it's not just about placing the person, you want to make sure that they're successful. And these HR leadership roles are not for the faint of heart. They are probably, in my opinion, the most challenging role in the C-suite for a whole variety of reasons, which we can talk about, but they're really, really hard. And so therefore, the success rate of a lot of these HR leaders is not always as high as it could be. And I don't like that. I think that's really unfortunate. So I thought, okay, maybe there's a way that we can really build on and leverage the consulting practice and not just place the chief people officer, but then onboard them, 
coach them, and then consult with them so that you have this pull through and they are successful, but obviously the organization is. And that's exactly what's playing out right now. And everyone wins in that. We win, our clients win, the individual who we place wins. So this search business has just exploded for us. We started it in September. I brought in um, the best leader in this space who I know, an incredible leader by the name of Alan Mate, who joined us from Chapman CG. He's got 20-something years of experience, um, lived in Hong Kong for 20 years from the UK. He's got the best relationships with the best HR talent in the market. And he's able to bring them to the table for conversations with our clients. And he's just incredible. So he's built an incredible team under him of the best and the brightest. I think since September, we've landed almost 40 (laughs) executive searches, and we're filling these searches in record time. Even in a non-competitive talent market, it can take three, four, five, maybe even six months to fill one of those HR leadership roles. Alan and his team are filling these roles in six, seven, eight, nine weeks. I've never seen anything like it in the toughest talent market I've ever seen in the last three decades. And I think in trying to understand why is that, I think it's because they have these multi-decade relationships with the candidates. So they know who and they can get them to the conversation. And then their ability to assess talent and really create that fit is superior, again, because in many cases, we know the organizations and the key players so well. The very last one really quickly that we've added is in the HR technology realm. So we started an HR technology practice a number of months ago, and we do a few different things. So one is we're actually building novel HR technology software products that don't exist in the market to meet unmet needs. And we're uniquely positioned to do that because we are both technologists. Remember, I started my career as a technologist, and we have technologists on our team. But then we're HR practitioners. And what's interesting is the HR technology field is just blowing up. I mean, it's it's the hottest thing, one of the hottest things in the technology space. But the technologists in HR technology are not HR people. And HR people are usually not technologists. So in bringing that together, what's interesting is we've identified a roadmap of 8, 9, 10 uh, first to market uh, HR technology products or concepts that would meet unmet needs that are real pain points for HR functions out in the market. And the the technologists don't know about those pain points because they don't have that experience working within the function. And then the HR people recognize the pain points, but they don't necessarily know how to fix or address that need using technology, but we do. So we do that. We also feel like there's a role to play to help our clients with their HR tech stack. So really assessing different HR technology options um, and making really good selection decisions. And we position ourselves as no loyalties, no vengeances. We are objective. We intentionally have avoided establishing uh, partnerships and relationships with HR technology vendors because we want to be able to advise our clients in a really objective and agnostic manner. And the last part of it is really uh, workforce enablement and integration. So you know, most organizations, big or small, are going through some kind of HR technology implementation. And unfortunately, these usually don't go well for one reason or another. And so we've found a really big need to be able to come in, work well in the sandbox with the HR technology vendor and the client, and really help those implementations go well from a change management and training 
perspective, as well as just from a technology perspective, making sure that that technology is pulled through in the most efficient way. So this is one of the faster growing areas of our business. We just get incredible feedback. The person on my team, the key leader who leads technology is Jennifer Axmacher, 25 years at Accenture, is just unbelievable. And then the direct leader of that business is an incredible leader who I've known since my Expedia days named Kelly Sur, who if I could replicate Kelly 10 times over, our clients would be very fortunate. She just gets it and is really at this intersection of HR and technology. And I think this will be a really big area for us. I think you know, in the coming years, we will be a really key player in the technology world. So really excited about that. What's fascinating hearing you talk about this is that two things. This really reminds me of the MarTech space because if you swap HR with marketing in the conversation that you just had, both from the challenges of building it, the need as a service provider to stay neutral and all that, that's exactly the same. And I think that the thing that should give you a lot of optimism around that is, you know, when MarTech started becoming relevant, people started figuring out that there was a need for MarTech in the late aughts. You know, and I think in 2011, 2012, things that exploded so much are like, oh, you know, we're now a mature market. And the reality is that like 10 years later, it's still a fast growing and still really not early stage, but still in a definitely not a mature point. And I think that if you are ahead that trend in HR tech, I, I think you have plenty of runway ahead of you. As a CEO, how do you decide what not to do as a company? Because you have outlined three or four really meaty areas that reasonably one could build one company just on that. So how do you decide what not to do? You know, Dina, this is probably the best question you've asked me because it's it's the most complicated and elusive thing probably that we're talking about. I reflect back on my career and for decades, I've gotten advice and guidance from mentors, bosses, coaches, that the number one thing that differentiates effective leaders from ineffective leaders is the ability to focus and prioritize. So rationally and logically, I know that. And I believe that to be true. And it's really hard to do, especially when you're in a field where there's so much demand for so many things and so many unmet needs where there aren't really good solutions. So I feel this incredibly significant demand and need to meet all these needs that my clients have. You know, the, everything about what we do at Inspira is about being helpful to our clients. It's not about our own economic value and needs. We really put ourselves last and just myopically focus on meeting and exceeding the needs and expectations of our our clients. And if we do that, everything else works itself out anyway. But when your clients have so many needs across the space and there are such a there's such a system-wide meta level kind of lack of solutions, I just feel this never-ending need to help and to meet these needs. And so it's really, really tough. And so we're, I'll be honest, I'm not that great at saying no, and I'm not that great at narrowing the field and saying, we're not going to do these things. So I would say being self-critical, one of the things that I 
absolutely could have and should still do a better job on is is prioritizing and focusing and saying we're not going to do these things. So you must have been spying on me because we just got through a strategic planning process where one of the big things that we were working on is figuring out what we're not going to do because we've been adding all these additional things. So we go to market saying we can do the we're in Spira and we can do these 780 things. And that is, it can be randomizing for my team. It can be confusing for clients. You know, we don't, we're not a one note sort of song. People are always looking for the shorthand. Who is Inspira? They'll say, are you a search firm? Are you a consulting firm? Are you technology firm? Yes. And then within those things, we do, you know, three, five, 10 things in each of those. So I think we are finally getting to a point through my own leadership evolution and just the company sort of maturing where uh, we are coming up with a list of things that we are not necessarily going to do. And I think now that we're working at a broader scale, we also have the ability to say, to, to engage in creative solutions, like we're no longer going to do X. But how can we actually play a role in making sure that someone does X because that's still something that's needed, but it doesn't have to be us. So for example, we just uh, came up with this idea, which is really early stages, but do we actually create a separate entity that's not Inspira that does five, eight of the things that we no longer feel that we actually need or should do ourselves? Do we actually build that as a separate organization? Um, almost like a spin-off of sorts, and then you know really create an organization around that and uh, and then um, you know refer clients to that organization to meet those needs. and then we work together to meet the holistic needs of the client and there's some kind of revenue sharing agreement or something like that. Um, nothing's been decided on that. It's just an idea at this point, but I think it represents that we're we're really trying to to think in a more focused and, and prioritized manner. Fascinating and great. Final question. A business expression of jargon that drives you crazy. Well, I have to admit to you that I am the worst at this. So my team would tell you that I have all of these curtisms and my own jargon. So we have a joke within Inspira that every day I have to say Venn diagram at least five times. And I say nuanced and textured and uh, I have my own jargon. So I'm probably not justified in critiquing any jargon because I, I commit these sins every day. I think maybe the one that drives me crazy a little bit is lean in. And the reason why, I mean, look, I, I think incredibly highly of Sheryl Sandberg personally and professionally, and she's been an incredible uh, person who I've looked up to. So I don't want to take anything away from that. But I think the terminology has become somewhat abused and bastardized. And what bothers me is when uh, I've seen, in some cases, leaders who have been critical of her, or her books, or who are also not true leaders from a, you know, women's leadership or diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging perspective, but who love to use the term lean in, and then you ask them three questions about what they mean by that. And it's kind of a house of cards. So I think I that one irritates me when it's kind of used and abused in the wrong ways. Um, and it's just, I mean, there are people who are saying it 20 times a day, and there's something about it that feels a bit inauthentic. So the, the expression itself doesn't bother me, but the way people often use it and who's using it sometimes uh, is a bit irritating to me. Well, thank you, Kurt. This has been an incredible interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dino. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. For those of you who have missed the first part of my conversation with Kurt, that is episode 38, so you can go back and listen to it if you want. If you really like this episode, find a friend who you think may like it and tell them to listen to it. And if you're a big fan of the show, tell all your friends and post about it in social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss our episodes as they get released. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to leave reviews like Apple Podcasts, please leave us a really good rating. And if you feel like it, also write a review. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share a song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Cattaneo. To find out more about Inspire, go to their website, inspirehr.com, spelled E-N-S-P-I-R-A-H-R.com. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And on Facebook, you can look for me at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. As promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. We're going back to her first album, Brave and Wild, and the song is called Suddenly. Please.